Hi, everybody. If you have ever wondered for who and under what conditions people heal, then this conversation is going to be for you. I had the opportunity to interview Douglas Jafrida, who is a professor at the University of Rochester. And today we're going to talk about a study he did where he not just looked at the numbers, but he looked at what were the conditions or the beliefs and the patterns at which people were operating while doing this study, and therefore able to um, look at what was the difference between those people who healed and those people who did not heal. And that's what makes this study so fascinating. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. I'm going to read a little bit about him and then we will get started. Douglas Jafrida is a professor at the University of Rochester's Warner Graduate School of Education and Human Development, where he also directs both the counseling program and the advanced certificate program in mind-body healing and wellness, which is really exciting to see that type of academic classes offered. I believe it's the first one, as we talk about later. He is a licensed mental health counselor and a nationally certified counselor. A former chronic pain pain patient himself, he now focuses his counseling practice, teaching, and research on mind-body approaches to healing chronic pain. So we're going to hear about his work. We're going to hear about his own story of healing from a myriad of, of different symptoms and um, the research he's doing and, and also the work that he's doing to set up programs at the university level. Um, I am Jen Johnson. This is Thought by Thought Healing. I am a chronic pain coach. You can check out my work on my website, thoughtbythoughthealing.com. I come at this from a Christian perspective. So if including God in your healing story as you work through the emotions that come with chronic pain if that's important to you, then you should definitely check out my um, my website and what I do and my story. So without further ado, I give you Douglas Jafrida. Enjoy and also have a happy new year. Bye. All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, I am just honored to have Doug. And I'm going to see if I can say your name correctly, but it's Jafrida. Doug yeah, Jafrida. Yeah, you got it. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Can we um, just dive right in and start talking about your story and how you got into mind-body medicine? Yeah, uh, like a lot of other practitioners, I started as a patient. So I had um, severe back pain, uh, Was had an MRI, was diagnosed with a herniated disc, and uh, did everything that you could possibly do to try to be better short of surgery. So I had done you know, physical therapy, two different ones, yoga, uh, did a lot of uh, acupuncture, um, injections, cortisone injections, um, chiropractor, several different chiropractors. Yeah. And it was really just getting worse the whole time. So I had resigned myself to surgery. I uh, was had met with a surgeon and mm -hmm. was in the queue. There were, you know, a lot of people getting surgeries then for backs. So, so it was going to take a little while. And in the interim, I found John Sarno's book called Healing Back Pain. Yes. Yeah. And it just, you know, my world just like lit up when I read it. I, I read the whole thing in one day, um, kept going back to certain parts. And I went back to the surgeon and, you know, when we were doing my surgery consult and I said, have you ever heard of this guy? And he said, yeah, I've heard of him. And I said, is there anything to it? And he said, well, I don't know. Um, he said, uh, you know, some people do get better from it. And scientifically, there's no evidence to suggest there's anything to it. But he said, yeah, a lot of my patients have a lot of things going on, stressors in their lives. And we we mutually decided that if I wanted to take 
delay the surgery and take some time and try this out, that that would be fine. So that's what I did. Um, engaged in the kind of emotional work that Sarno recommended. I went and saw a counselor. Um, now there weren't people, this was 20 years ago, there weren't people doing, there weren't very many of them anyway, doing anything that was related to chronic pain counseling in that yeah. form. Most of the chronic pain counseling was learning how to live with it, not cure it. And right. so I found a, a good psychoanalyst, um, sat with her and she said, what are you here for? And I said, I have back pain. And she said, well, I don't think I can help with that. And I said, no, you can you're, you're, do your normal thing. You know, let's look at emotions. Let's look at my past. Let's look at repressed feelings and, and memories and things. And so we did our work together. And over the course of, it was about four months of me working on my own until I was completely cured. Um, but I kept seeing progress along the way enough to, to, to cause me to keep delaying the surgery and keep diving into this work. So yeah. And not only did that go away, um, but I had realized after seeing Sarno that I had a huge, very long history of mind-body issues. Yeah. I had migraines. Those went away. I had a torn rotator cuff. That pain went away. I had uh, arthritic knee pain. That went away. I was having acid reflux, and I had already had surgery on it, uh, where they kind of wrap the esophagus around it and tighten it up. So I still can't throw up now because of this surgery that I realized that I probably didn't need at all. I was still getting the same acid reflux after the surgery. Wow. Medicine, um, that pain went away. Uh, hmm. I had a lactose intolerance, a lot of digestive issues. I don't have any lactose intolerance anymore. I eat whatever I want. Um, yeah. A whole host of things that basically was my whole life, I realized afterwards that that was what Sarno calls TMS. Yeah, I love it. Never gets old. Um, okay, so then from there, you were... Were you, what were you doing with your life at that time as far as career wise while you're healing? Yeah, so I was a college professor, still am. Um, and I teach in a counseling program, which was ironic that this was, you know, somewhat difficult for me to come to terms with, even though that's my profession. Um, but I was an educational researcher. Um, I'm, in a, I'm in a University of Rochester, which is a research institution. So I do a lot of research and teach. And um, I studied college student retention. And so I've done a lot of research on how to keep kids in college and you know, what factors go into that. And I was mostly engaged in that work back then. A lot of publishing, a lot of writing on that. Um, at one point, I got invited to be have an administrative role at the university. Okay. And at the time, we were, you know, we had two little married, we had two little kids, a lot of stressors. And, and this job, I, I hated. Mm -hmm. And my backpack came back with uh -huh. a vengeance. And and I knew I said it's 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 the job I hate doing this. Hmm. I had been sort of negotiating with my dean trying to get out of it, and she had been a little bit resistant because there was a lot involved in getting me there and trying to replace what I was doing and all that. And finally, one day, I just went in and said, "I can't do this anymore. I, I could barely walk. You know, I, I was in excruciating back pain." And she just said, "Fine, if you don't want to do this anymore, what do you want to do?" And before I could even think about it the words just came flying out i want to study mind body medicine yes and she surprised me by saying okay if you really want to do this i can help she yeah. said there's this thing at the university of rochester called the bridging fellowship and it allows it's designed for people that want to explore something new that requires them to work with people in another area of the university we have a medical center uh and she said if you can find someone to partner with i'll support you to do this bridging fellowship, which was essentially a semester leave to, to dive into this area. 
And so I, I applied for and, and was awarded it and found a guy in the Department of Neurology called named Bill Watson, who's a psychologist who works mm -hmm. in, with seizure patients. So about 30% of seizures are non-epileptic. Yes. means there's nothing in the brain chemistry causing them to have seizures. It's what we call psychogenic. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have a state-of-the-art mm -hmm. seizure unit that they hook people up to EEGs and monitors and can wait for an event. And you can tell right away if it's a seizure, you give them anticonvulsants. If it's not, Bill comes in and talks to them about therapy and emotions and things. Wow. I got to shadow and learn from him. Um, I also got an opportunity to shadow and take some courses with um, Howard Schubner, who's a big person in this field, who, who knew Bill, um, did some trainings with, with other people in the field, learning the emotion-focused part of this. And so I started a private practice about nine, eight years ago, I think, on the side. I still am a professor. Okay. Treating and working with people with various forms of chronic pain um, for, for quite a few years now. I did what's called a core training in a therapy called intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy or yeah. ISTP. Yeah. So ISTDP is a therapy that Sarno recommended people engage in. You know, Sarno said about 80% of people get better just by reading the book. But the 20% that's more difficult, they need therapy. And that was the therapy, the therapists that he connected with. They did that kind of therapy. Okay. So did did they call it ISTDP back then or did he just describe yeah, I don't recall Sarno actually um, labeling in any of his readings ISTDP, although he might have. But the therapists that he works with who are on the documentary and things like that, they are, the one woman is an ISTDP therapist. Right. I tried to get her on the show. So far she has declined. I'm going to get her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I could give you some other recommendations if you want to, you know, leading people who, who are really um, kind of at the cutting edge of using ISTDP for curing different health issues, including chronic pain. I would love that. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. So I got, I got uh, core training from a guy named Marvin Sporman, who was really a, just a master, one of the best I've, I've ever been around. And I had been a therapist for, you know, quite a long time at that point and just learned a whole new way of seeing the world and conducting therapy and and an ability to help people like I never imagined I could do before this training. So I imagine it really changed how you how you work with people counseling wise. Oh, it changed everything. Yeah. 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 I, it wasn't that I wasn't helpful before. I think I was a just fine counselor. Um, but I never could make the kinds of changes that I can make since I started with this approach and, 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 and dove into the core training. And, and my clients tell me that too. They'll say, Oh my God, I've been in therapy for years with other people. And this was very different and, and much more helpful in many ways. Um, we're, we're going to shortly transition into this, this paper you wrote that I have markings all over. It's fantastic. Um, and in it, you talk about ISTDP and EAET emotional awareness and expression therapy. You got it. Yeah. What would you say the difference between those two types of therapy to like typical talk therapy? What do you see as as different there? Yeah. So those are both emotion focused approaches. Mm -hmm. the, the idea behind them is that emotions get withheld from us, and, and sometimes even from our awareness, because we learn sometimes, often at an early age that certain feelings are not only not okay, but maybe even dangerous. Mm -hmm. And we learn this 
usually from our primary caregivers, not always, but mostly. Mm -hmm. Experience and express feelings. We learn from them what's okay and what's not okay. You know, we're born the most helpless creatures on the planet. You know, when we're born, we we our entire existence depends upon a bond with our caregiver. Yep. And so we're very sensitive even before we can talk to those dynamics. And we learn as children what, what is okay and what isn't. And so we develop strategies or what we might refer to in psychology as defenses to help us ward off feelings that are dangerous or perceived as unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Underneath that, we know that all feelings are actually healthy. It's these strategies that we ward them off with that causes problems, not the feelings themselves. Even really uncomfortable feelings like intense anger, and rage, or grief, sadness. These are all healthy things, right? Anger is necessary. It gives us energy to, to, to advocate for ourselves or someone else. Yeah. Uh, what people mistake for anger is what we often think of in ISTDP as a discharge of anxiety. It's different. Explosive rage that's harmful to other people is usually not anger. It's anxiety discharge, road rage, where someone cuts us off, we just blow up and have to you know, go after them. Um, that's not real anger, that's discharge. What happens with discharge is a feeling emerges, we know it's not okay to feel it, and so it becomes, it boils up inside, and we know anxiety discharge because our bodies react very differently. That's one of the things when, with clients, we check in with that. You say you're angry up here, but tell me about your body. What are you experiencing? And usually it's tightness, stiffness, uh, constriction. That's a, The body is experiencing that as anxiety. And so it blows like a tea kettle. Yeah. Usually anxiety discharges also um, are not clear-headed. Whereas real anger, the body feels loose, free-flowing. It's usually warm. It's a heat. It wants to push up and out as opposed to anxiety, which is, they often talk about tightness here, tightness in the shoulders, constriction in the stomach. It's trying to be held in. Um, With real anger, our thoughts are clear. We may say things that people don't want to hear, but we don't do it out of a place of aggressiveness. We often walk away feeling better, even though, well, they might not be happy that I said it, but that really had to be said and I feel good about it, as opposed to an anxiety discharge that's often harmful to other people. We don't feel good about it. Even if they harmed us, we become the problem because of our reaction or overreaction to it or the harmful things we say or do. So those are the things that ISTDP helps us pay attention to. In therapy, we're pushing on feelings, helping people start to get in touch with them, noticing continually the defenses that's, that get in the way of those feelings, mm-hmm. intellectualization, you know, disconnection, changing the subject, joking and laughing it off, or chronic pain, pain symptoms flare up in sessions. Mm -hmm. We point those out. We help people um, after continually seeing them over and over and over. Usually patients will start to notice them too. There I go again, I'm doing this, I noticed it. We get them in touch with their body so they can start experiencing the real sensation of anger, not just the constriction that's associated with the defense of the anger. Yeah. And when they do that, over time, they learn to trust us themselves, the process, and the subconscious will release. And in its most dramatic form, it's called an unlocking. If I was new to TMS, I would pause this and rewind and listen to that four times. <laughs> yes. Can um, I just want to unpack a few things. I'm going to just pretend like I'm I'm new to this. Um, 
somebody you're talking about anxiety in the body um instead of expressing the anger um is that is is are you saying that it's fear of the anger itself um and and we're finding the tension because we're holding back the anger and that's the anxiety we're feeling of what are the ramifications if i do the if i expose this anger um i already know subconsciously this is bad if i show this anger um, I've learned it in my childhood. So we tense up, keep it inside. And that's the anxiety response you're talking about in the body, in the body is essentially fear. Exactly. Yeah. We get real, a, a, a real feeling comes up, a defense pushes it back down because it's frightening to feel those things, Yeah. right? Whether because they're not allowed, or maybe my dad was the rager at home and I'm never going to be like that. So I've got to disconnect from these feelings. So they get held in and they get tightened up. Now, ironically, it's not from an ISTD perspective, it's actually not the repressed anger that causes us to be sick. It's the guilt we feel about harboring this anger because it's, it's not easy anger that makes us sick. Like the example I use nowadays, politicians, right? Whether, however, whatever sort of political spectrum you're on, you generally hate somebody on the other side, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, whatever. People can come into my office and rant and rave about that and get all this anger out about these people, but they're not real people to them. They're projections. They have no complex relationship to them. Yeah. It's complex anger that makes us sick, mm -hmm. meaning loved ones that we care about who have hurt us and done horrible things. Yeah. Uh, but are also wonderful and caring and good people. And so it's not just the anger we're harboring that we're disconnecting from. That's part of it. But a true unlocking is not just the expression of anger and rage that might come out. But it's all it, it's followed by a wave of guilt. How could I feel this way about this person I care so much about? And when that entire process unfolds, sometimes slowly and over time, sometimes very quickly and very dramatically. That's usually when we get people um, feeling physically and emotionally better. Yeah. Yes. So, so there's the fear, uh, there's the fear of the emotion that we have tagged as bad. And then there's also the fear of the guilt. I'm separating those two as different things, but there's also the fear of the guilt you're going to experience when you acknowledge and admit uh oh, I love this person, but also X, Y, Z. Yeah, guilt can come in these big waves that could drop people right to the ground. Yeah. But it passes, you know, with a therapist's help or sometimes with just support of other people. It comes can come very quickly, just like grief, right? Real grief comes in these huge waves and they've, you know, passed through us very quickly, but very intensely. But at the end, you're okay and, and usually feel a lot of relief. So when I first asked this question, I asked, what's the difference between EAET and ISTDP and traditional CBT talk therapy? So um, I assume that you were saying in talk therapy, we may talk about these emotions and in these therapies, we're going to emote about these emotions. Yeah. Cognitive behavioral therapy is actually part of what most of us who do mind-body medicine work in therapy also integrate. All right. Cognitive mm -hmm. means we work at the level of thought. Mm -hmm. And behavioral means we work at the level of changes in the behavior that someone uses. And we do both, right? We're constantly helping people to stop being afraid. One of the things we want to do is break the, the pain, fear, pain cycle that happens with chronic pain, right? We get a twinge in our back. 
our brains go to, oh my God, I must have heard it. I heard it cracked or something must have happened and this is terrible. And that causes us to be afraid, which causes everything to tighten up and then the pain becomes bigger. And so we do challenge those in the therapy and including the study that I did, that's part of what we do. We use psychoeducation, which basically means teaching people that back pain isn't caused by physical problems in almost all cases. And there's tons of evidence piling up now yeah. Shows that there's much more of a connection to, you know, the new pain science shows us that yeah. it's probably not physical in most people. And so we teach them that. And that that's a cognitive process of challenging the distorted thinking that they've been taught that, that you know, I've hurt myself and it's never going to heal and I'm just going to keep getting worse. The behavioral aspects are to teach a person to gently re-engage in things that they love without fear. Um, be gentle but persistent in the way that they do it and so that is a part of the therapy that we do but that's not all and that's not the core of the healing cognitive th behavioral therapy um, doesn't have this research has shown it doesn't have the same effect at curing chronic pain by itself right. it's helpful and most people would use it as a as a way to to deal with or cope with the pain because it can be very helpful in that way but it doesn't have the same clinical effect as the emotional uh, therapies. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's use that as a diving board then to talk about this paper um, called a qualitative study of clients with chronic pain who participated in an integrative mind-body psychotherapy intervention. So I've spent the last, I think I reached out to you a week ago um, and this was recently published, right? Yeah. December 7th. So yeah, it's December 20th now. So 13 days ago. Got off the presses. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, let's dive into talking about this because a lot of this was around ISTDP. And um, yeah, first, let's just talk about what is the premise? What's going on in this paper? Yeah, so um, emotional awareness and expressive therapy was developed by Howard Schubner, who a lot of you and probably your listeners are familiar with, um, and Mark Lumley, one of his colleagues. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it is an application of a lot of the principles of ISTDP. Howard has studied with Alan Abbas, who's one of the major figures in ISTDP, and they integrated a lot of those principles into this work. Um, instead of doing an individual therapy, they did it in small group format. And in fact, you can watch a, a lot of what I did. You can watch in Howard's documentary, um, This Might Hurt. So if you want to see what some of this looks like. Now, Howard had everybody paired off and they were doing the therapy themselves. We had therapists in each room. We broke people. There were two of us. My okay. colleague, Jeff Farah, and I both conducted therapy. And we would sometimes do things in large groups and sometimes do things in smaller groups where we get at more of the emotional um, expression and awareness. And so we, we we did two groups. One we did at a at a, a center that was affiliated with a hospital. We did it. It was a lower income area. We did it for free for people and had them come in and, and do the groups. The other group was uh, people basically people on my wait list that uh, to see me individually. I said I can't see you individually, but if you want to try this group, we could try that. And so we ended up with a, ended up eleven total went through the whole process between both groups. There were a few more in each group, but not everybody either finished or or signed on to be able to do the full part of the study. Okay. Um, and so we started with the psychoeducation component, which was teaching them about back pain and different other forms of pain and mind-body approaches and why this might be that's something more emotional or physical. The science of pain too, right? Which I'm sure you're familiar with. The idea that pain isn't, our bodies don't pick up pain signals. That's where people get confused. Our bodies and our sophisticated, very sophisticated nervous system picks up danger signals 
which are sent to the brain and the brain interprets what to do with them. Um, and so the brain has a big role in this. So we teach them about that. And we also integrated mindfulness, which yeah. I think a lot of people nowadays have become much more familiar with, but it's a meditative practice, but also a way of being that just involves non-judgmental awareness of things going on in the present moment, identifying and learning that these secondary processes that go along with that, the judgments, the fears and everything can be controlled. And, and you learn to sit in the moment. Um, it's really helpful for chronic pain because it teaches people to relax and not be so afraid of it. Um, but mindfulness alone doesn't cure chronic pain. There's been lots of research on it. It's tremendously helpful with a lot of the associated symptoms. People who do mindfulness are less bothered by their pain. They may rate the pain as being the same, okay. um, but they're like, they, they rate their, their distraction or their implications of it much less. And, and from our perspective, it really helps because mindfulness essentially is not just attention training, but teaching people to be comfortable with things that are uncomfortable. Yeah. And there's nothing more uncomfortable for most mind-body patients than sharing, experiencing, expressing strong emotion. Mm. So you can develop that capacity through your own mindfulness practice. So we taught them about mindfulness. We do it at the beginning of every group and assign them homework that they would do some on their own. Yeah. And the core of it was, and, and, and they had other forms of homework too, journal writing that's associated with some of the emotional um, techniques that we use. And then we'd come in and, and talk and experience and express it. We'd sometimes do things in full groups. Sometimes Jen and I would split the groups up into smaller groups and do things uh, with them in those formats. Okay. Um, and what, what were the results? So yeah, out of the 11, I think four, and, and I should say, these were people who were really in bad shape. Um, they had exhausted in most cases, um, every physical kind of intervention that was available to them. Mm -hmm. We didn't limit it to just a particular disorder, although many of them had back pain, not all of them. Okay. Uh, people with migraine headaches or IBS um, that we included. Um, but yeah, four out of the 11 um, got completely better after 10 weeks. Um, yeah, go ahead. Mm, um, uh, when I first... So, so first of all, I want to talk about the, um, the type of paper this, this, that this is, because this helped me to really understand what you were writing about. Um, can you talk about the qualitative, what it means by having a qualitative study? Cause, cause the fact that there was only four out of 11 that healed, I think is fascinating. And so to understand why the remainder of them didn't was my big takeaway from your paper. Yeah. Um, so, but for me to, to get, to understand how impactful this study was, I needed to understand that, that part of it. So can you um, unpack that for us? Yeah, that's an important part of this study is to understand the qualitative nature of it. So most people are familiar with quantitative studies where, you know, you do an intervention and, you know, you have some control group and um, they're, you know, bigger number, the better. And you, you crunch the numbers to see uh, what the um, efficacy of the approach is. With qualitative, we do something very different. Um, we're not interested so much in the numbers or the outcomes. We're looking more at process. So the question becomes not just how many get better, but for whom and under what conditions. And those for are what- whom and under what conditions. Which yeah. is what quantitative tends to miss, right? Mm -hmm. Especially a newer emerging 
uh, area of research like this, because the studies are, they're coming out all the time, but um, we're still learning what the differences are between people. So we don't have enough quantitative um, assessments yet to include everything we want to include. So this is where we turn to qualitative research. So what that means is we do observations of the sessions and we interview people during the, the course of the therapy to understand you know, what it was like for them, what they were experiencing as they went through it, what they believe to be helpful or not helpful. Uh, so that's what the study was. We interviewed them at the beginning and the end. We took pretty careful field notes and had some people observing some of our sessions and taking notes. Yeah. Okay, so um, you had four that had um, a, a lot of improvement. A lot of healing. Yeah, or would call themselves cured at the end. Yeah. You know, okay. Pain, you know. Pain free, cured. Okay. Pain free. And, and also, there was this emotional component too, where they'd say, "I just feel better. I'm happier." You know. Now, any chronic pain patient will say, "If my pain goes away, of course I'm going to feel better emotionally." But they would say it's more than that. You know that there were some emotional things that cleared up as a result of the process. And I would absolutely agree with that. Just considering my own story. Okay, so then there was two people that had no improvement. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's the fascinating part of all this. Um, can you talk about what the research found between those who healed and, and those who didn't? What were the conditions by which we see that differentiation? Yeah, that was the two, those two folks we were really interested in learning about because yeah. it, that, that's, that tells a big part of the story if you're trying to decide who might benefit and who might not. Um, and we weren't looking at their conditions necessarily or, you know, you know, well, people who have this maybe don't benefit compared to people who don't have this. We we're looking at their experiences. And so, you know, the group that got better, they believed in this approach wholeheartedly right from the start. In fact, they were beaming at the first interview to say, oh, my God, I read this. This is me. I can't wait to get started. I feel like I'm going to be better right away from this. You know, I, and they dove right in. The group that showed moderate. There was also, you know, five people that we, we term moderately improved. They would say, my symptoms are a bit better. I feel better. Or, or my symptoms are just as bad, but emotionally, I feel way better than I did before. I was in really bad shape, you know, really upset or sad. One woman was actively suicidal um, and said she was just waiting to save up money so she could fly to Switzerland and do doctor assisted suicide. So this group was just to get her through till she could get money to commit suicide. And, and, and at the end, she's... Mm said she was not suicidal whatsoever felt really connected to everybody emotionally well and wanted to engage so there was that group in the middle and then the group at the at the bottom that that claimed no emotional or physical benefits yeah so when it came to the belief in it the people in the middle who were partially better said they partially believed it at the beginning and partially believed it when they finished it's not my whole it's not the whole picture there's something structurally still going on here but this is helpful. You know, this is one tool among many. They often kept seeing other sorts of physicians or therapists that did other types of interventions where the group that was all in, they didn't do anything else. I'm not going to see another doctor. I'm done going to physical therapy. I'm done going to, you know, a chiropractor. I'm just all in on this. And, and then they healed. That didn't get better. Really didn't believe it from the start. And we told, talked about their stories in the, in the paper. You know, the one woman was saying a lot that I don't know why people get so upset. You know, people need to just learn to not be upset. That's they're just she was older and she'd say that's just their youth getting angry when she knew that the whole point of this was to express emotions. Yeah. People would start to do it and she'd want to calm everyone down. Hey, relax, everyone. It's You shouldn't get so upset about this. Where the rest of the group saying, no, this is healing. This is what they're supposed to do. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm seeing two components so far. One is how much they buy into the mind body. Yeah. Uh, I know we're not, we're trying not to use the word connection anymore, but the mind body, <laughs> they bought yeah. into that um, belief. And then um, also we're seeing a difference in valuing and whether it's right or wrong to emote, to feel your emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, in yeah. fact, and, and the other, there was a younger guy who didn't get better at the end. And he said, I spent a lot of time learning to repress my feelings. I, as a young child, I was out of control emotionally and it was, nobody could handle me. And so I had to, you know, this was a, a, a skill I learned and I feel like there'll be a cost if I um, risk opening up that can of worms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it can definitely be scary. Um, something else that reminds me of, I feel like it's connected is you, you, in your paper, you talked about, this is like my favorite subject right now, but, um, um, secondary, um, games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you, I'm really curious about this. It's come up in my, my last one or two interviews. Um, and there seems to be, uh, a difference in opinion on that language whether that language secondary gains is helpful and um yeah so can you talk about a what that means for people listening and b um uh how important is it for people to understand that concept and and what's at risk here yeah so secondary gains are really old old concept probably as old as human beings but it was really articulated well during freud's time mm-hmm. the idea that people subconsciously it's not they don't do it on purpose, but yeah. subconsciously can manifest physical symptoms that allow them to obtain benefits that otherwise would be unavailable to them. Yeah. Getting out of work, uh, getting out of a vacation they don't want to go on, uh, uh, you know, getting out of household chores, uh, obtaining medicine that they really want for other reasons, um, you know, all kinds of things that can go on that that. It's really, you know, been a focus in some of the chronic pain work because chronic pain is so confusing and nobody can really identify, mm-hmm. you know, who's hurting and who, you know, imaging is very unhelpful as we're learning. You know, yeah. somebody can be in extreme pain and have a knee or a back that looks healthy and someone can have a knee or a back or shoulder that look a complete mess, like they shouldn't be able to walk and they have no physical pain whatsoever. So there's no real empirical way to test it besides testing what, what you feel and how much it hurts. Yeah. And so this has become a big thing, not to mention the fact that there's these things called conversion disorders where people can get really, really sick or blind or have all kinds of physical ailments with no or no physical origin. Yeah. And, and so Freud and his colleagues spent a lot of time identifying this concept of secondary gain, like go along with it. Yeah. Um, so did you, I'm curious, did you bring that concept up in the beginning for these 11 participants? Did they know straight up that we were looking for, or you were looking for second right, games? I'm going to silence it. Oh, oh. it is disturbing. And we can't hear it on this end. So it's just. Okay, good. Um, we did not explicitly state it. We came to that, to, to see this through the interviews so for example the one woman who didn't get any better talked right from the beginning about 
it's kind of funny, but every Christmas I seem to get end up in the emergency room. She literally said that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and at one point, she actually blurted out during one of our meetings that if um, she didn't get sick, how would anyone ever pay attention to her? She had a daughter she was estranged from, you know, and, you know, when, when she'd end up in the emergency room, everybody would come and mobilize and support her. And so that became on our radar by listening to her story. Uh, the same thing with the guy who said, I can't feel my feelings. I've spent so much time repressing them that it would be threatening to let them go. And that's how we see you know, it was through the stories that we came to this uh, focus of our of our study. Not we didn't, it, which is typical with a lot of qualitative research. You often go in with a more inductive framework, meaning we're letting the people and their stories drive where we go. We don't come in necessarily thinking we know everything and we're going to prove or disprove something. That's very okay. different quantitative research where you okay. hypothesis and your research is to prove it or disprove it. So then do you feel like from this research, you came out that um, the understanding secondary gains um, is, is an important part of healing or where, where did you land on with that? That maybe like when that relationship, when that secondary gain is too strong, uh, maybe that is a condition in which um, people will have resistance to this type of healing. Yeah. Yeah. Secondary gain is such a touchy subject. It's not yeah. something that we would you know, probably present on at the beginning, but we would allow to emerge more naturally as people get comfortable with us, with the process, start to trust us, trust themselves and allow some of this to emerge. Now, on the other side of it, if I was designing a quantitative study and wanted to you know, maybe screen out people that might not be as amenable to it, I might ask some questions in the beginning to see who might be the people that are most amenable and some of the things I might screen from. If you're taking this paper, for example, yeah. you might look to see how, how much do you believe in this? How yeah. dedicated are you to the, to the intervention? How important are these symptoms to you in other ways? What do you lose if you don't? You know, you figure out ways to ask that in ways that were non-threatening. But these might be some of the things I might I might ask if I was looking to see who was really amenable to this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't when in my own healing journey, I I didn't understand that that secondary gains concept until maybe like two-thirds of through my healing, maybe, maybe halfway through my healing. And then for me, it was really empowering because then I knew, oh, these are the areas that I need to do emotional work around. I did ISTD therapy on my own. Um, so how, Howard Schubiner's book does describe how to do it. And I went ahead and and was able to do it on my own. I know that not everybody is, but um, but understanding the secondary gains did give me a little bit of a, a pathway or an arrow to know this is where I need healing is, is in these these areas. So it's helpful. And, and, and we learn this again, often younger. It's so many times in, when I'm doing therapy with people, they'll say, oh my God, I, you know, because sometimes these, these sort of physical defenses and, and issues come up just later in life. And you could have a childhood that's relatively free of that stuff. But many times they realize, oh my God, I was, I used to get stomach aches as a kid, or I got headaches as a kid that nobody could figure out, or growing pains, growing pains all the time that I was at the doctor, whatever. Um, and people will will make connections later to realize, oh my God, my parents didn't weren't capable of attending to me physically, but when I got sick, they really did mobilize and show a lot of care and concern, and um, which is fairly typical. And so when you think about how childhood influences current situations, yeah, we learn to get things we need out of life um, 
on our own. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anything else from that, from the paper that um, you feel is important to share that might benefit people who are starting out or mid journey? Anything else you discovered that comes to mind? I know we've, we've hit on three big, really big ones, but. Yeah, um, I think probably you mentioned Howard Schubner's book. I think that would probably be a more helpful resource for people that were starting and want to get a sense of it. Um, I recommend it to everybody before yeah. they see me. I say, read the first four chapters. You're going to know at the end whether this is the therapy that, you know, sometimes people are very familiar with the therapy when they call and other times they just look up a chronic pain counselor, get referred to me, but don't know why, don't know what I do. I, I, that's a really helpful resource. And it, it it speaks, he writes it in really uh, easy to understand language to both understand the process and what this might look like. So if someone was thinking about engaging in the therapy, I do like that as a resource. Yeah, I agree. That was, it was very helpful for me too. Okay. So first four chapters. Um, okay. Well, in closing, first of all, thank you for for doing this work for people like you and me, we know that it absolutely changes lives. So um, appreciate you being on the front lines there. Anything else you want to share before or encourage people with before we we end? Where can they get? And also, where can people get a hold of you? Because you do have a private practice. Yeah, I do. I don't. I'm not taking clients right now. Okay. Um, and and uh, and and. I do have a waiting list for people who live in New York because counseling like, unlike you who do coaching, you can see people anywhere. Uh, yeah. Therapists, just like doctors can only see, our license is only good in our own state. So I do get a lot of, you know, people who might email from out of state wanting to see me and I, I just can't. Yeah. Uh, it's not, okay. it's not allowed by law, but I do recommend that people go to the psychophysiologic disorders site, PPD mm -hmm. website. You're probably very familiar with it. Mm -hmm. um, they have a list of resources for people, physicians and, and mental health providers who um, might be in their area. Also, psychology today is the thing that a lot of therapists sign up for. And you can do your own work as a, as a client to figure out some keywords like ISTDP or emotion focused or somatic therapy. So if you put those kinds of words into your search in you know, a site like psychology today, you probably can identify someone local. Okay. Who does it? But coaches are, you know, because you can go, you know, coaches like you can go across state lines and do things via Zoom. So that's another great resource for people that yeah. want to get engaged in this work, um, but don't have anybody, you know, right next door who does local. It. Yeah. Yeah. It is it is challenging to find a, a local TMS counselor. Yeah. So we have a program. That is one thing you want to say. We do have a training program, and that's what I I presented at the PPD thing that you right. probably watched, right? Yep. Um, yeah. We started, a. I, I became aware pretty quickly as my wait list filled up that, that we need more people trained in this. And yeah. so I started a program to teach clinicians, uh, not just mental health, but healthcare providers more broadly um, about how to do psychophysiologic work, TMS work. And um, it's we started what's called an advanced certificate program. Yeah. And it's an advanced certificate in mind, body, healing, and wellness, we call it. But essentially, it's training in, in these types of modalities. I teach a class in chronic pain. Um, we teach some emotion-focused therapy classes. We have two tracks, one track for people that are, are therapists that want to learn the detailed therapeutic skills, and another for general health care providers that it could be doctors, nurses, um, uh, therapists of other kinds that aren't psychotherapists that 
Um, and so it's, it's only a 13 credit program. We're working to get it fully online. It's not there yet, but it will be soon. My chronic pain class, which starts in January, is, is fully online. And so if you're interested, go to the University of Rochester Warner School webpage, and uh, you can look up that advanced certificate program and get more details. And we're one of the few, maybe the only one, that, that does this at an academic institution. That's what I was going to ask you. I, I have yet, this is the first time I've heard of a university offering uh, a course in mind-body. I mean, I think you just answered that, but are you aware of any others? No, not not that yeah. I've been aware of. And, and, you know, some of the folks at you know, Gary at the PPD Association says he hasn't found any yet either. I mean, there's lots of trainers and great training you can get both in ISTP and just psychophysiologic disorders. Howard's got a whole group of people now that, you know, provide yeah. really good training. But yeah, I think we're one of the only academic institutions right now doing it. And, and the advanced certificate isn't a degree and it doesn't certify you to do anything. So you have to have your own license or certification. It's really just a collection of courses that our state has recognized that fall under this heading that can prepare people for this work. Yeah. So you'd have to be a you know licensed mental health counselor or social worker or a physician or a nurse or have that credential already um, to be able to do the work. We just would teach you some more skills on, on how to do it from this perspective. Yeah. I was able to take Howard's course, which was fantastic, but to see it showing up in university, I hope that is something that, that spreads and it becomes more universally known. Well, and it's been fun too, because we have some doctors in our area at Highland Hospital, which is one of our partners at the University of Rochester. And uh, and some of the physicians I've partnered with now are doing more training for their medical residents. And so I've got an opportunity to get invited and do some training for them. And they're getting really well-versed on it. And so you're getting physicians more and more now who come in really well-versed in psychophysiologic disorders and able to screen for it instead of just automatically sending people to, you know, for pain medicine or advanced right. you know, tests that, that maybe are unnecessary. Or, and they use language that's a little bit different and that's not so inflammatory and scary to people to help people understand this could be something more emotional. And so it's been really rewarding to watch that change over the last, you know, because when I got into this 20 years ago, you, not only were doctors not talking about it, you didn't even mention it to your doctor. You right. know, I learned pretty quickly that I wasn't about to say, well, I got to heal through a book. You know, or, you know, we, we sort of whispered to each other, you know, behind you know, closed doors, behind closed doors about this. And yeah. now to, to be invited to, to teach doctors about this was just mind blowing and just incredible to me. Such an honor. Yeah. Um, just something you just mentioned. I, I remember after I healed, I went back to a few of my doctors and told them I actually asked them to I don't remember the correct medical terminology they use, but to resolve essentially all the diagnoses that I had on my file. And I was like, can you please get rid of those? And they asked like, wait, why and how? And tell me. Um, so it was, so for those of you listening who have a story of healing, tell your doctors because it gets out there because that I like, I see it as that doctor now can say to the next patient, Hey, I have a patient who healed. These are the sources that she yeah. used. Um, yeah, instead, instead of, of doctor, just writing you off like they used to do 20 years yeah. ago, they would say, well, that's silly. You know, they, you know, they're not going to tell anyone. They're not going to argue with you that you're not better, but they're certainly not going to provide referrals or ask you more about it. And it's all changed now. I mean, they're, they're, I think there's a growing recognition, especially in medical schools now, as they teach people. There's not, there's, is my understanding is most medical schools still don't have a, like a pain curriculum. Right. 
you know, I was at a conference recently with them and they were talking about that, that fact that most of them don't, but they are getting more education and the idea of pain and the mind-body connection. So they're, they begin their careers with a real awareness that there might be something to this that, that they might have limited skills with, but recognizing there are other people in the, in the community that might be more helpful. Yeah, I love it. So good. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for what you're doing. All the things. Appreciate well, same it. to you. I love your podcast. I, I just started listening to it and I've shared it with some of my patients and they found it really helpful. So you're, you're providing a great resource. I appreciate you doing it. Good. That is my goal. Get it out there so other people can heal. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks to the watchers. I'll see you guys next week. And thank you again for being here. Bye-bye.